We're so honored and excited about this interview. And we wanted to just make a note that during this time of COVID, as you know, most of the recordings are done through Zoom. And so sometimes the sound quality is not exactly what we had hoped for. And so this interview with Elaine Alec is so important to all of us as Canadians and as humans. And we really hope that you will enjoy it with all the little bumps and sounds and um, you know, unedited parts and really appreciate and take in as much information and uh, knowledge as we did in interviewing Elaine. So enjoy this podcast with Elaine Alec. Hi, I'm Julie. And I'm Liz. We are business owners turned podcasters. This show gives you the permission and tools to create your courageous second act. We call this the afterglow. Welcome to The Afterglow. Today, we are honored to introduce you to Elaine Alec. She is an author, political advisor, women's advocate, and spiritual thought leader and teacher. For over two decades, Elaine has been a leading expert in Indigenous community planning, health advocacy, and creating safe spaces utilizing Indigenous approaches and ceremony. She's the author of Calling My Spirit Back, a book which links an extremely personal examination of lived experience to a much broader overview of serious national sociological concerns accompanied by tangible steps to approach them. Elaine was a founding member of the Comprehensive Community Planning Mentorship Initiative in British Columbia. She's a founding partner at Alder Hill Planning, Inc., and is a regular speaker at conferences and workshops on the topic of Indigenous planning, governance, healing, and trauma-informed approaches in planning. She's involved in the sexual harassment, advice, response, and, pre and prevention work for Workplaces Advisory Committee, a board member with the Canadian Centre of Policy Alternatives, and recently completed a three-year term as the Union of BC Indian Chiefs Women Representative, where she advocated for Indigenous women and girls. She advocated for their safety through facilitating safe spaces to plan and drive policy change at various levels of government. Elaine currently resides in Kamloops, British Columbia with her husband, Ryan Day, and is the proud mom of three kids. Welcome, Elaine, to the Afterglow. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for coming, Elaine. We are, we're so excited to have you as a guest on the show today. We, we own a yoga studio as well as um, doing our podcast. And while most people initially come to yoga as a way of you know, transforming their physical bodies, Truly, we believe this, but we also know yoga to be more than that. It's this path to transformation of yourself, of your life, and to free yourself from all this sort of past conditioning and traumas that you, you know, that hold you back from who you truly are. And in reading about you and learning about you, this is the path that you have walked using, you know, Indigenous wisdom, ceremonies, your beliefs. I mean, we just read out your incredible bio, which is you know, beyond, but what's not listed are your personal experiences and traumas. And so, you know, we really want to dig into this because we want to learn as much as we can about you, but like where to start. Can you tell us about your early upbringing and these experiences that are not even mentioned in your bio? So I grew up uh, on a reserve in uh, Penticton, British Columbia, which is in the Southern interior of BC. We're about, um, an hour and a half from the United States border, Washington, 
United States. And I grew up the first six years of my life with my grandmother. I call her my Tama. And um, she was a language speaker and she only spoke our language. And she would tell us stories and tell us what to do in the mornings really early to go send us out on the land, to connect with the land, to connect with the water, to introduce ourselves in our language so that the animals would know we were there and not to harm us. And so we grew up learning things like that from her. And I didn't realize um, what a gift she was giving us because I didn't know, I didn't learn about residential schools until my late 20s. And so growing up, um, I didn't realize what a rebel my Tama was for speaking our language and sharing our stories because um, back then they could be arrested. You know, there was a time when our people weren't allowed to gather in groups of more than four without being arrested. And then, you know, our ceremonies and um, our, cer our ceremonies were outlawed um, back then. And so I didn't realize, you know, what a gift my time had given me because I know so many people have lost that. And so many of our grandparents and parents were afraid that their children would be harmed if they spoke our language. And so they never passed it on. And so I, I was really blessed to learn from her. Um, I spent a lot of time with her. Um, because my mom was also a practicing alcoholic. She quit drinking when I was 10, but the first 10 years of my life were back and forth between a really safe space with my Tama and then a really unsafe space with my mom. Um, and there were a lot of people in our community who drank and there were a lot of you know drug houses in our community. And so it wasn't really safe, but it was normal. And so, you know, we were always around that. And so, I started experiencing sexual abuse from the age of four to 10 and not just by one person in my community, but by many. And, you know, it was something that's been passed on for generations because of residential school. So many of our parents and grandparents were sexually abused by the nuns and priests um, and beaten for speaking their language. And, um, told that they were ugly and dirty and, you know, had their hair cut off and weren't allowed to speak to each other, their family members, they were split up in the residential schools. And so a lot of that was really passed down to us. And then with the 60s scoop, the government came in to take our children because they didn't believe that our parents could parent. Um, and so there were more children taken away in the 60s scoop by the Ministry of Children and Families than there were children taken away to residential schools and we've had so many of our kids die in care even to this day um, and many have died you know died in residential school and so there's that legacy that was passed on to my grandmother to my mother both my mother and my father both went to residential school and the last residential school didn't close until 1996 and so, you know, there was a lot of that stuff that we were dealing with and a lot of that that we just didn't talk about because it was just something that happened with all of us. And, and then when you did try to talk about it, um, nobody, you know, the adults didn't know how to address it. And so we were often silenced because you don't talk about that kind of stuff. And so... You know, I spent a lot of my life living like that. My mom got sober and then she wanted to reconcile. Um, but I was 10 and had learned how to shut my feelings off and not to cry and not to talk about them. 
not to make a big deal out of things. So when my mom decided to talk to me about it, I started shutting down and getting triggered at that age and started smoking. And then I started drinking at 12 and I became a raging alcoholic by the age of 12. And so that just continued on for a majority of my life where I struggled with alcoholism, um, self-harm, uh, chronic disease, um, suicidal suicidal tendencies and I attempted suicide twice um and then you know just really working through it and it wasn't until I was 30 that I finally decided that I was tired of feeling and running and just living that numbed out life and so I I decided to start my really start my healing journey and being honest when I turned 30 and I'm 42 now mm-hmm. Elaine, there's um, so much in what you just said, speaking to your personal trauma as well as the intergenerational trauma, and so much of what you said that, um, you know, almost makes it hard for me to go on with this interview, and yet you somehow found a way to experience all that and go on with your life, right, and not just in 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 a bold and open hearted and courageous way. And, you know, Julie and I, we really want to unpack that in this interview because you have so much to offer. The fact that you can, you know, live through that and choose another way for yourself. Um, I'd love to poke into your grandmother a little bit. Uh, There's something in her, it sounds like, that was willing to stand up for her and defend your culture no matter what was happening outside. I imagine part of that lives in you. So... Can you tell us a bit more about your grandmother and what that safe space was like being with her? Yeah, my my grandma grew, uh, she was born uh, February 14th. So she was born on Valentine's Day mm-hmm. in 1904. And um, she was born to uh, Chief Surimt. And Surimt was one of our hereditary chiefs. And he was a descendant of Kuthbak Jainton and Pelkamulak. And Pelkamulak is one of our hereditary chiefs from the 1600s who uh, was from Washington and had 24 wives. And those, he was known to bring our nations together because back then it was through marriage that we built those kinships and relationships and those trading routes and, you know, avoided war through creating that. And so I'm, I always laugh when I introduce myself in BC and tell people, so we're probably related. (laughs) (laughs) So many wives. (laughs) Yeah. So we, in our, in our culture, we have, um, we have hereditary chiefs, um, and then we have our elected chiefs that come from the, the, Department of Indian Affairs or the Indigenous Services Canada, they created the elected system of chief and councils. But before that, we had hereditary chiefs and we also had heads of families within our communities. And all of the families had a role within the community. And those uh, families also had teachings and stories that they passed on to each other about what their role was to keep the community moving forward. And so the hereditary chief's family Um, had a governance role and their role was to learn 
um, how to listen and to listen to all perspectives and all ideas and all ways of being, um, even if you didn't like them and even if you didn't agree with them, um, they were raised to learn how to really listen to people. And so that was the family line that my Tamak came from. And uh, her, I think it was her dad or her grandpa were one of the last official hereditary chiefs. Um, my my godfather, Adam Enius, is our hereditary chief now. Um, and we started reclaiming that within our family. But she, my grandma learned, she, you know, even though she, you know, was really strong in, in who she was and where she came from in her family, she also suffered from alcoholism for a number of years. And her and my grandpa were actually bootleggers for a while. And um, so they had a lot of really funny stories about that. Um, but I, I, I didn't hear too much about it, but she lived through that. And then she also uh, was introduced to the Catholic Church um, through residential school. And my Tama actually became a devout Catholic. And my family, um, uh, my mom and her brothers, they had a really hard time with that because they didn't understand how all of this stuff could happen. Um, and my and my Tama was a devout Catholic. So she would go to church every Sunday um, and she would sing our Catholic hymns in our language. And so um, when my, when my, uncle asked her why she would worship a god with blonde hair and blue eyes she looked at him and said how do you know what my god looks like and so you know that was one thing that we were always taught growing up was that it's not about the people it's about the teachings behind the religion and the love-based teachings and those stories and those safe spaces for that um, they created for people and a place for us to pray. And so, um, yeah, my Tama really introduced that to us was, you know, to be open and understanding of all beliefs and all people. Um, and if they hurt you, that there was probably a reason for it, not because of you, but because of their own hurt. And so I remember experiencing racism. Um, her and my mom would always say, you know, they must be really hurt. Mm -hmm. You know, their family must be really hurt for them to want to hurt you like that. And wow. so instead of being mad at them, you should just feel sorry for them. And so that was what I learned. You know, the first time I heard someone call me a wagon burner and a squaw, I was five years old. And I was told that by another five-year-old at school. I just want to go back to the, um, a little bit about the residential schools, because I mean, it's, there's still so much unknown about residential schools to so many people in Canada. I mean, some people don't even know what a residential school is, but I mean, the experience of your people and what they endured in these schools, it's, as you mentioned, created this multi-generational trauma, right? That it's been passed on, the cycle continues. It's like the cycle of Indigenous people, the cycle of abuse, of addiction, of incest, of trauma. And there's so much trauma in the community that still is there. So, you know, your own experience with all of this, I am so curious to know how you are surrounded by this continuously because it's not um, in any position of um, this extreme overhaul and healing yet. So how do you, you know, being surrounded by it every day, 
do what you did and then start your path to healing? How does, how does one do that? Oh, it was a really long journey and a combination of so many things. Um, I believe that, uh, I believe it was my grandma that it was her that kept me alive. One of the things, um, when we talk about our governance systems and healing, um, our people have coyote stories and their, uh, people call them legends, but their stories of creation, their stories of the world before people were here, um, and the way that they did things to create harmony and to create reciprocity and to create, you know, a place where everybody had purpose. And so we have these teachings and these stories of, of our mountains of the land of the water of the rocks like wherever you go you know in Canada and the United States when you see a beautiful piece of land or a beautiful mountain or a really special lake or some there to know that there's a teaching behind that that the people from that land have a teaching tied to that and so that's what I was raised with and we were told these stories as bedtime stories over and over and over again and you know we we had repetitive teachings they were or because we're oral storytellers and those things were put into our spirit that formed who we were that's why we didn't need RCMP because we were raised to know the difference between right and wrong and we knew what consequences would happen from the moment we're born not only that but we were also told the moment that we're born and we come into this world our grandparents are the first ones to hold us and they welcome us in the language and they give us our name and they tell us how loved we are and that they were waiting for us and so they say oh this is you know welcome you know your this is what your name is and you're so loved we were waiting for you you know this whole time and you know this is who I am and this is your family and this is your land and then protocol happens happens with the baby and the baby's belly button you know from the moment that their their belly button falls off it's given back to the land to tie the baby to the land to know that they belong there that they have a sense of belonging and so you know we're raised with that that's put into us and then when we turn four coming of age we learn about our spirit helpers and we're given little tasks to do even at four to find those helpers and as we see those helpers, as we start growing up and we talk to our elders about that, they say, the creator loves you so much that he sends these, these beings to watch you, to let you know how loved you are, to let you know how sacred you are. And so I think about those things, you know, imagine if we had a society that the moment their babies were born, that they were told how loved they were, that they had purpose, that they had a sense of belonging. And so, you know, those were put into me and that's what kept me alive, even when I was going through all of this stuff and, you know, having that faith and, and knowing that, you know, there were reasons for these things as hurtful as they were, because we learn that we pick our path before we're born, you know, as light in the universe, we see our path before we come into our human form. And we know what that's going to be and that we have to go through this in order to live our purpose. And so we pick our parents, we pick the people. And for a lot of times when you're going through hard, hard times, it's really hard to accept that teaching because you think I would never pick this for myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, but 
I was really lucky that I had family that always reminded me of those teachings, even when I had a really hard time. My sister, who's two years younger than me, had the same teachings. And so she would remind me when I'd have a really tough time. So all of those things kind of kept me alive. And, and then there were points in my life where I knew that I would have to make a different choice or die. And so that, those were my decisions when I would get to these certain points in my life. And so um, <clears throat> it was my oldest son who's 25. He, you know, he was the one I had him when I was 18. He's the one that, you know, kind of was that guiding light for me, that, that kind of angel that showed up in my life that gave me a really big reason to want to move forward. So, you know, there's a combination of so many things and so many teachings, but it really was that I had those things put inside of me from the moment I was born by my tumma. The first six years of my life, you know, those were the things that I heard and those were the things that I learned from her. Uh, there's, I have so many questions for you. I, I love that idea of the spirit helpers and, um, you, you know, you're being supported here. You're loved by the creator and you're supported. Um, it's, that's truly uh, a total shift from the messaging, some of the messaging I received uh, from my culture, my religion. Um, and I think it is life-changing. It would be life-changing for our world to be raised with those beliefs. You've written a gorgeous, beautiful book called Calling My Spirit Back. Tell us a little bit about the title of that book. So I, I always have to give um, credit to one of my editors who, who actually said, you need to change the name of your book. This is your book, but um, I just have a suggestion for you. And it was originally going to be called Cultivating Safe Spaces because I wanted this book to be uh, a resource to people who wanted to facilitate safe spaces um, to have really hard conversations. And it was inspired by the work that I did with Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls last summer. And so um, I, I, had, I had expected the book to go to facilitators and planners and maybe some of my contacts through universities. Um, but he said, no, this needs a broader audience. And if you change the name of the book, you might get a broader audience. It won't sound so textbooky. And so he said, I, I like this phrase out of your book. And I like the sound of calling my spirit back, but it's up to you. And I sat there and I thought about it for a really long time. And I thought that really resonated with me. And then I actually put a poll out on Facebook and everybody picked Calling My Spirit Back. If you didn't know me or my book and you were walking through the bookstore and you saw that, which name would you like? And it's drawn so many people to me from so many different backgrounds because of the name of the book that they've told me. I was just, I just stumbled across this and saw the name of the book and, and I felt compelled to reach out. And there's so many meanings behind that, you know, especially with the work that I do. Um, when I travel to different territories, I was always told, you know, when you do really hard work and you're visiting and you come home, you have to remember to call your spirit back because your spirit gives itself to people and, you know, you, you kind of lend it out and you have to remember to call your spirit back before you come home. And then the other piece of it was that I was told <coughs> that when you drink alcohol, um, the alcohol spirit is so strong 
that it chases your spirit out. And so um, for four days, and that's why people feel hungover and low energy. And, you know, sometimes you get depressed. And so when, when you're drinking alcohol, your spirit leaves and, and you have to find a way to call it back. And I was so lost in my alcoholism for so many years. I lived for so long without my spirit. And so a huge part of me coming back and reclaiming myself was calling my spirit back little by little. Um, and that was tough because it was, um, it meant dealing with things I didn't want to deal with and the feelings um, because I can't, I don't even remember what age I was when I learned to just turn my feelings off. And I remember the first time I really cried was when I was 15. And then, you know, it took another 15 years after that to learn how to really cry and to feel and to accept emotion into my life. So many of us, you know, we walk around this planet without feelings or our feeling, feeling our feelings. Like we have been taught to shut down. I mean, your experience you probably could not have survived without shutting off of those feelings, right? But you've talked about how when you were ready, when you actually were ready to start to acknowledge and feel those emotions, accept the pain, understand it, it was actually like the first time that you experienced love. This is so profound. Can you speak to that a little bit? Oh, it was so... It, that was like the changing, that changed my entire life. I actually ended up going to a seminar. Yeah, so I went to a five-day seminar, and um, they talked to you about your childhood. They talked to you about uh, belief systems that you create to protect yourself, and that a lot of times we carry it into our adult lives, and we hold on to them so dearly because they were so good for us when we were little. Um, and a lot of times as an adult, they no longer work for us and they actually become self-defeating. And so that was my life. I was, I was living in this world where I had these walls of protecting myself and I didn't feel anything. And I was able to do a lot of work, you know, in circles that I probably wouldn't have been able to before. I did a lot of work with politicians and businessmen and it was a very patriarchal you know space and and it was a really um it was really it's, it was an ugly space that I learned to live in because I just didn't care I had no feelings toward it and I just brushed everything off that I that if I had been open to it probably would have hurt my feelings or would have offended me um, and so you know I, I lived through that and then when I was 30 and I went to the seminar at the very end after telling all my stories without crying and you could tell they were they were wondering why I wasn't showing more emotion where I was very you know just matter of fact this is what's happened to me in my life and I got over it and I'm fine. I'm, I'm totally fine. I don't need any more healing because, you know, I went through that. I know I'm strong and I'm, I'm here. And so that was my attitude. In the end, they started to ask us, what do you want more of in your life? And I said, I want to be happy. And they said, well, what does happy look like? And I was like, I don't know. I, I just want to be happy. And they said, well, give us a feeling word to that. What, what is the feeling attached to happy? And I started getting really frustrated because I didn't know what they wanted from me. And so they finally started asking me some questions. Well, 
tell me about the time, um, tell me about the day you got married. And I started laughing because I was there and just two months earlier, my husband had left me for another woman. And so I, I just kind of, I didn't even, I didn't even want to talk about that. And then they asked me, well, how did you feel the day your son was born? And the moment they said that to me, my, the blood just left me and I felt nothing. I just felt this coldness kind of go over my body. And I was, I couldn't, I felt an anxiety attack coming on and I was looking at the door, wanting to run out the door. And I, I didn't know what was going on. But as I was standing there processing it, I realized that I don't know how I felt. I don't know what that feeling is I don't I can't even describe it and I couldn't put words to it and then I started feeling like the most horrible heartless person um and that was actually something my mom had said to me when I was younger she's like I don't know how I raised such a heartless daughter and so that always stayed with me and so when they put me in that position and I felt like I don't even know how I felt when my son was born I should know the answer to this I should know what that feeling is and then I started to kind of lose it. And then they kind of pulled me back and they said, well, tell us about the last time you felt safe. And then that's when I broke down because it was when I was laying with my tongue up when I was a little girl and she was rubbing my back, telling me stories. And, and I remember standing there, closing my eyes and thinking about that. And they said, okay, what is that feeling? And I, and I felt it, it was that love. And I felt love inside of me. And then I started crying <clears throat> because I can't remember. They asked me when the last time I felt that and I couldn't remember besides that time with my tama. And it was then, you know, around that time where I started learning to just shut it off. And I remember talking through it and saying, you know, I dealt with a lot of the stuff that hurt me you know, and I learned to put this wall up to protect me from the hurt, from the pain, from the trauma, from the anger, from the sadness, all of these things protected me. This wall protected me from feeling that. But what I didn't realize was that that wall also stopped the feeling of love. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm shutting out feelings means shutting out all feelings and all of the good feelings along with the bad feelings, because in order to feel love and in order to feel, you know, safe in order to feel all of these beautiful things, you have to be open and that that's vulnerability. And so many people don't want to be vulnerable um, because they don't want to be hurt. Um, but, you know, without feeling the the hurt and the pain and the sadness and the anger, you also can't feel the love. And so a lot of us feel like, you know, somebody's not me, like, I don't feel loved by this person. I don't feel loved here. Uh, and, and, you know, when they talk about that has to come from inside that self love to love yourself enough to be open and vulnerable, even when it hurts is a really tough thing to do. And it's something that I've worked really hard to be, um, to, 
to go through the feelings and it and it causes anxiety in me like I, I suffer from anxiety attacks and you know I get triggered and it's really tough and I cry really hard sometimes and feel like I'm gonna snap or break um but when I allow myself to go there before I'd be scared and I just shut it off um now I allow myself to go through it because I know I'm gonna be okay before I thought I would die like it felt so hard that I didn't know if I would make it through it but because I've gone through it so many times now, these growth spurts, I know that even though this is hard right now, even though that I'm really hurting right now, this too shall pass and I will feel, you know, I will still be able to feel at the end of this. I'm so grateful that you've had your, your Tama to give you that early experience of love, that that's something you can access to support you in the work that you do now. Um, I also have tried for a long time to numb only the bad feelings and realizing it's not possible. You numb the bad, you numb the good, and you end up living life in a very narrow band, uh, which is comfortable, but uh, it's, you know, it's half living. You're half dead. And um, I just want to highlight what you said about anxiety and how, if I'm correct, if I'm understanding you correctly, that anxiety comes because of emotions you need to feel. Is that right? Yeah. Because yeah. I think that's also something people may not realize about anxiety and that it still yeah. can be there even after all the work you've done. It's it, I, the, one of the biggest aha moments was I was at a funeral for a young girl and um, I was feeling I was feeling anxiety and I couldn't breathe and I, I didn't know how to process it. And I, you know, I was told to be strong. You know, this, we're there to support the family. We're just to support. We have to be strong. And I remember just, you know, having this anxiety attack and a friend came and put their hand on my shoulder and he said, you know, you can cry. And the moment he said that, I burst out crying and the anxiety went away. I was able to breathe again. And I've learned now that when I start feeling anxiety, when my lips start to tingle, when I'm like feeling like I'm going to have a panic attack, I, I say I'm going to cry sometime in the next two days. I'm going to have a really good cry and I don't know what it's for. And I've also learned to not try to name it anymore, to just to not try to process it so much, but to actually just let it go and then and then once I do that it feels so much better but I've felt that a big part of my anxiety has been you know not being able to freely just feel and cry it's mm. been and when I do I it just feels so good and I don't go into those massive attacks and my body doesn't get all tense anymore and I've learned to breathe so is this um, a part of your sort of four conditions for healing that you've talked about? Uh, it is a part of the um, being self-aware. So really understanding, you know, the behaviors that we have and, and how we deal with things and, um, you know, just being really aware of how we're processing and taking, you know, really learning how to take that uh, accountability for how you're feeling and what's going on in your mind and in your spirit and in your body. Um, because once you can start understanding that, 
the easier it is to let go of it and to process and to move forward. You know, before, if I would get triggered or something would happen, it would take me, you know, a month, you know, two months to get through it, to work through it. I'd go into this really deep depression. And now something will happen and I can feel it and it'll trigger me. And I can usually work through it within a day, you know, two at the most, and then just get on with my life and realize that, oh, that's what it is. This is, it's, I'm, I'm not there anymore. I'm safe. I'm loved. I'm here today, you know, and pull and be able to pull myself out and move forward. You mentioned the work you did as Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs Women's Representative. And that was work where you specifically dove into the missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, you know, the findings recently, we remind, we reminded ourselves of the findings that were just announced last year, June 2019, and how there are structural, racist, colonial, misogynistic practices still living in Canada today that contribute to the genocide of Indigenous women. And 200 findings were put forth. And um, this has been something that's gone on for so long. So what have you learned through your own experience working in this area and what can we do as, as citizens of this country to support your efforts and the efforts of indigenous people here in Canada? That was the most um, intimidating work I've ever done. Um, I remember listening to the reports um, from different advocates who've been advocating for MMIWG for the last 30 years. And a lot of them are family members who've lost immediate family members um, who've gone murdered or who've gone missing and been murdered. And I remember not feeling connected to that because, you know, I felt like, oh, I've, you know, I don't have, you know, luck, you know, luckily for me, I've never had an immediate family member go missing or have been murdered and and so I felt very detached from it and I remember talking to somebody about it when I was elected into the role you know that I just I couldn't feel I didn't feel like I belonged in that space and she said we all belong in that space as Indigenous women you know we um it's just that it's another thing to add to our plate because we're already doing all of this other work and it's just something else that we have to address. And we've all been affected by it. And I thought about how many times I've been in those positions and how many times, you know, I've been put in harm's way, how many times I was actually raped when I didn't realize it was rape and that a lot of the relationships that I had were, were non-consensual, but you felt pressured to, you know, and so we have, and then it just, you know, it grooms you, you know, to let it go or to realize that um, if you get hurt, nothing's going to happen about it, like nothing's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and especially because Indigenous women are so dehumanized from, on so many different levels, um, that it's so easy when you see an Indigenous woman go missing, the things that pop up into people's head, oh, they must have been a street worker, oh, they must have been an addict, oh, they must have been this, and, and dehumanize them so that people don't care. And, you know, that no resources are put behind finding 
finding these women who have gone missing, these girls who have gone missing. And then you see the response to when, you know, uh, a mainstream Canadian, you know, when a, when a white woman goes missing or a white man goes missing, the resources that are put behind to find these individuals um, and the response time. And so, you know, there's all of these things that we see that we just have learned to accept, you know, that Canada doesn't care about us. You know, we just, that's just what they don't care if we live or die. And, and that's been, you know, that's the way so many of us have felt, you know, that Canada doesn't care if we die. Like we don't, we don't matter. And so, you know, going through this work, the first year was just listening. And I heard so many disclosures over that first year and so many stories. And I cried so hard, you know, because just when you think you hear a really traumatic story, you hear one that's even more traumatic. And you hear about the families looking in swamps, you know, looking for their loved ones and trying to find ways to talk to police who just disregard them or, you know, just these horrible stories about what people have gone through, you know, trying to find their loved ones. And then the second year I was angry, you know, the second year of my term, I was just angry and and, and attacking people and trying to figure out how to process, like looking at the injustice and like, why doesn't anybody care? And then the third year, um, I went into planning mode. You know, I stepped into, you know, my strengths. I'm a planner and a facilitator. So I started facilitating safe spaces for individuals to come together to talk about the issues that happen in our community and how do we create safe space and how can we prevent this violence from happening to Indigenous women and girls. And that was what that work that I did across the province of British Columbia in the summer of 2019 is what really inspired me to sit down and write the book. And you know, when I talk about, you know, what do we need to do, there's two resources, which is the National Inquiry Report, the Calls for Justice. Um, and then there's also another report um, from uh, East Vancouver. It's called Red Woman Rising Report. And there's stories of women from the downtown east side. And I think if people read that document, they I, just knowing and having an awareness of what happens and what's actually happening in Canada today, I think would make a huge difference on, you know, how and, and teaching each other and sharing those resources with each other. Um, because unless, you know, every time I've heard stories from the families, you know, through the National Inquiry, when they tell the stories to the commissioners, when we have this space where they, the families actually step forward to talk about what happened, I just think every Canadian needs to hear this. There's, I mean, it would, it would change, it would change everything because the moment you hear those stories, it's, it changes your life forever. I will never be the same. And so a lot of those stories are put in, in word in the Red Woman Rising Report and in the National Inquiry Report. You are um, I, the um, embodiment of warrior. <laughs> you have the true warrior spirit. I mean, in, in your story, in your resilience, in the demonstration of hope that you still have, you know, I'm happy that you said in your second year of your term, you got 
angry because I, I wonder how one, I mean, I'm so um, removed from it, but can be exposed to it, live through it. And then now in your, your term, your research and your studying and your findings have to relive all of it and not be angry, pissed at the world, pissed at Canada and want to retaliate. And so, um, your honesty is is actually it's it's healing it's it's an incredible story but you are you're this this true warrior and you've said i never learned how to be a woman in this world because i didn't know what it meant to be one which is um so true for a lot of women right we're taught in this sort of looming patriarchal society and yet you've still come out um you know obviously honest about the struggles that still exist for you but as this warrior you've been honored you've gotten awards I mean how does that feel to you in the present moment today after this all this experience and then and then having been exposed obviously to all these other women's stories how does that feel to you in yourself and your body today I feel like today I think I'm living my purpose I, I'm on purpose. I, I found out what that path was. You know, I, I lived in my 20s, you know, struggling between my alcoholism and trying to find a way to make money and, and find a way to build a business. But there was no way I could be successful in business, you know, with, with the amount of drinking that I was doing. Um, and, you know, through my 30s, starting to, to find myself um, and then still working within those patriarchal systems um, that just totally, those systems dehumanized me. Working with businessmen who made comments, who had the attitude of, you know, we don't show emotion here. We don't, we don't cry here. We don't do that here. It's all about business and action. And so if you do, if you just shut up and do the work then you get to move up and you know if you if you do shut up and do the work and continue to move up you're a good woman you're a good Indian you know though you know they're one of the good ones because they don't say anything and we can do and say and treat them however we want to um and they're just going to go with it and you know I and I, I do I find that for all women you know that we're put in those positions where we're expected to behave in a professional way and I've done so many interviews you know with professional women who have started to cry talking to me and have apologized for not being professional and um, that's you know I I'm so, such an advocate for being who we are like to not leave pieces of ourself um, because we want to sit at professional tables and I challenge government and I challenge corporations that if we want to make a shift we have to start honoring everybody for who they are as human beings because you know we can't continue to support this type of work where we're expected to leave pieces of ourselves, you know and not show up truly who we are and I've been at political meetings where I've cried and I've shared stories and I've you know it made people very uncomfortable at those tables and who've who've tried to tell me that that doesn't belong there and have continued to show up and tell the same stories and share the same tears um, because it's not it's not my job to make them feel comfortable and and so I can only show up and honor who I am and so you know, I've pushed that at a lot of political tables in British Columbia, and 
um, two years ago, I believe we had a joint gathering, no, a BC ministers cabinet meeting with First Nations leadership, where it was all of the ministers from the province of BC and all of the First Nations leadership from BC. And they came to talk about politics and they talk about, you know, the economy and they talk about, you know, uh, title and rights. And they're talking about really, you know, conversations like that. But this time they actually allowed us to have a panel to talk about uh, sexual harassment and assault and healing. And it was in a, it was in a forum where a lot of our leadership were, and it was the first time that's ever happened in a space like that. And that's one of the things that I push is that, you know, there's always space. This is important to have these conversations in all of the work we do. And that, you know, we need to have space to talk about what's on our heart. And I've challenged the government on that too. When you start your, when you start the work that you do, let's talk about our heart because that's the only way that we're going to build trust and we're going to build um, faith in each other. And we're going to be able to build, build real relationships because the biggest mistake that Canadians can make is to focus on the healing of Indigenous people, mm -hmm. you know, and to to also focus on the healing of Canadians. Mm -hmm. And my husband brought this up in a talk that he did. My husband was the chief for the Bonaparte Indian Band for a number of years, and he did a talk about reconciliation at Thompson Rivers University. And he said, that's the biggest mistake we can make because, you know, settlers have trauma that they need to work mm -hmm. through. You know, when we talk about um, a sense of belonging, you know, our sense of belonging to this land and who we are. Like we, we do have those things. We we can pull on those stories and those teachings and that mastery to be confident in who we are and work through that trauma. But we still have people that were removed from their lands. You know, families that were removed from their lands to come to Canada. You know, people who were who came from the war who were traumatized. You know, and taken away from their families and hidden and put in churches where they were abused, and then they were brought to Canada. And so there's this legacy, and those people became priests who worked in our residential schools. So this is, you know, a legacy of trauma in Canada that stems from all pieces. And so, you know, I think a lot of people who, who are dealing with racist attitudes really don't have a sense of belonging, you know, and have a disconnect to where, who they are and where they're from. And that comes out in the attitudes that they have towards other people. I think that's part of what keeps some of us away, right? It just the acknowledgement that we've in some way contributed to this or allowed it to go on. Those are difficult emotions to be with, right? To, to let that land in your body um, is difficult and it takes courage to just acknowledge it and be with it. And I think we've proven that um, zipping ourselves up and living our corporate lives like robots, it doesn't work, right? If you look around the world, when we leave our hearts at home, it doesn't work when we run businesses and governments detached from our full presence and our full being. Um, I wanted to ask a question about something that hasn't come up yet in this interview, but something that also was a part of your story, which was rheumatoid arthritis and fibromyalgia, which doesn't look like you have right now. Um, and I'm curious, I, we heard in a podcast that a, a doctor said, you, you don't need to be in pain anymore. And it sounded like he wasn't just talking about physical pain, that there was an emotional pain as well. And so do you see the overlap between emotional pain, physical pain? Yeah, I, you know, I'm living in uh, remission from my RA um, since my daughter was born. 
Um, and it was around when my daughter was born, when I was started going through to different self-help seminars and to really start digging into my trauma. Um, but I developed my RA right after my son was born, um, which was 18. And shortly after that, my mom had a massive stroke, which left her unable to speak or talk. And she was the matriarch of our family. And so a lot of the responsibility from her fell onto me and I was not prepared at all. Um, and one of the things um, from Louise L. Hayes, she has the book, You Can Heal Your Life. Mm -hmm. And one of the, the thoughts attached to RA is feeling put upon and so thinking about all of those things that I felt put upon in my life and not able to set healthy boundaries and not able to love myself um, those things really contributed to the the disease in my body you know when we we don't talk about our feelings we don't talk about our trauma we don't talk about those things and we don't put words to them they stay inside of our body and it manifests itself in disease. And so every time, you know, we, we hold that in, it makes us sick. And until we learn how to talk about it and break that silence and work through it and acknowledge it, then it releases it from our body. And, and all of those toxins that are holding on to it kind of gets released. And so, you know, it was a lot of that anger and that self-hatred and all of those things that I held on to that really, really contributed to my rheumatoid arthritis. When my rheumatologist came to talk to me about it, he, um, it was after I had attempted suicide because I just couldn't deal with the pain anymore. It was so bad. It was so debilitating. I was always in the hospital. I was on morphine and I was on, um, all of these different pills, methotrexate and, and all of these uh, other really hardcore drugs that were killing my liver, mm. um, making me sick, um, unable to move. I couldn't brush my hair. I couldn't zipper up my zippers because the pain was so bad. And I couldn't hug my son because I just, it was too painful. And I thought I was going to die because it started getting into my chest walls and affecting my heart. And I thought I was having a heart attack and so it was just, I couldn't deal with it anymore. And I was so depressed. And so when I attempted suicide and I ended up in the hospital, my, that was when he came to talk to me and he, he just said, you don't have to live like this anymore. And, um, you know, I was really passionate about health because so many chronic illnesses took away my entire family. Mm. And, um, that's another thing when we look at the health rates in Canada and the, the, the health rates that we have in diabetes, cancer, and rheumatoid arthritis and chronic disease are so much higher than the general Canadian population. And I really believe it's tied to the trauma that our people have experienced. Mm. There's so much information here. I'm learning so much because so much of this I didn't know either. And, you know, you speak about your trauma and I think about, um, all of the years, right? Starting from when you were so young and you posted a picture, an image on your social media of your five-year-old self and then yourself today. And um, you wrote in your, um, in the comments, you said, I do my best to love that little girl and keep her safe and treat her well by saying loving things to myself. Every time I play self-defeating games or cheat myself of beautiful things, I cheat that little girl. I am a deserving woman who loves herself. 
We like to ask the question, what would you say to your 15-year-old self? But what would you say to this little girl? What would you say to your younger self? Oh, I would definitely tell her that she was beautiful and smart. You know, I... I all I always when when I'm asked this question I usually say I would tell her that she's not alone and I would share my story with her um, to let her know that you know to not be ashamed of her story. Um, but just after hearing you know back from that and putting me back in that space, I think one of the biggest things I needed to hear was that I was beautiful and that I was smart and. Um, you know, because it was not what I was hearing, you know, it was the opposite. I was hearing that I was ugly and I was stupid and that I didn't belong and that I was never going to amount to anything. You know, those were the things that I was told throughout my life. And so to be told that I was beautiful by another woman, to be told that I was smart by another woman, I think would have changed my, changed my perception because, you know, I looked for that from men you know, because I, I didn't trust, I didn't trust men, but I, and I didn't trust women either. You know, I didn't know where I fit in, in any space. And so I was just very untrusting, but I think if a woman were to step up to me and, and feed me that light, I think it would have been a lot different, you know, as far as where I was moving. Well, you were definitely both those things, beautiful and smart. <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about, um, just continuing to trust your inner voice and your own courage in a world that uh, continues to put down all of us women, right? Or, or just restrict all of us women, but then in a world that also is, um, you know, not yet working for the advancement of Indigenous people. So is there a daily practice that you do? I'm curious, is there a daily practice that you do to really stay connected to your, your spirit? Um, I practice gratitude uh, and I pray. Um, that's the biggest thing that I do for myself is the gratitude and prayer. You know, an open, I, every day I pray for an open heart and an open mind um, that, you know, I, I'm able to hear things even if, they don't sit well with me, that I'm able to understand where people are coming from, that, you know, that I'm able to just take that in with an open heart and open mind and doing my best to not judge that and to honor their perspectives and their purpose in this world. And, um, and then I also pray for the open hearts and open minds of everybody else. And especially when somebody hurts me, you know, especially for people who are, you know, have that ugliness and hate inside of them that I pray for them to have an open heart and open mind that whatever is happening will heal their heart you know heal that hurt so that their mind can be open to other thoughts and ideas to help them grow so that maybe they can let go a little bit of that ugliness that they're holding on to so those are little practices that I do every day to especially when I'm doing tough work I, I often pray like that at least you know a couple times when I'm in the middle of doing the really hard work uh, again, your your hope and resilience is is so powerful. And um, the afterglow, the the name and sort of topic of our podcast is about women 
you know, finding this resilience, but also having hope for themselves and for the future. And so it sounds like you're already in your afterglow. It really sounds like you are living your afterglow, but what is your afterglow for yourself and for, you know, all of humanity? Just being happy. I, you know, I, I remember one of my teachers and mentors, you know, every time I'd struggle with a hard decision on career or, you know, direction in my life or worrying about other people or just everything, he would tell me that the creator puts you here to be happy. That's your only job is to find ways to make yourself happy so that you can create that happiness around you and your family will know by your modeling how to be happy. And so when I think about decisions that I'm making, that's all I want to be in this life is happy, you know, and I, you know, I don't care if I, you know, get the big house that I want and I don't care if I ever get that car that I've, you know, used to dream about and I don't care about, you know, advancing my, you know, career in a certain way what it all boils down to is, am I doing what makes me happy and what feels on purpose? Where can we learn more about you? Where can our listeners go to learn more about you? I have a website, uh, com, and it has links to all of my social media. And I've been trying to keep up with my YouTube channel, um, doing a, a YouTube video once a week um and i just share different things um so i i also have a youtube channel beautiful and you can get your book calling my spirit back yes you can get my book uh on on the website and uh, you can also order it online and it's finally um being offered through Amazon on Prime now. Um, I know a lot of people haven't been supporting Amazon. So if you're not a supporter of Amazon, um, it is available through 39,000 different bookstores. So you can probably go into your local bookstore and they'll order it in for you. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. You're so inspiring and everything that you have said is so thought-provoking as well. So I know that myself and our listeners and Liz, we're going to take away so much from this and really have to process a lot of it as well. So um, we really appreciate your vulnerability and openness today. Thank you. Thank you, Elaine. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening in. Be sure to follow us on social media at the Afterglow Podcast Official And take a minute to leave us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, and Google. Lift a sister up and share the afterglow with others who are seeking their courageous second act.